0: Friends, if we know that the strength to follow the Lord's commands can never come from us, then we must be a people who continually trust in the life-giving Word of Christ to fuel our obedience. It is the Spirit who empowers us to obey the Lord as we believe in His Word, as we put our faith in His Word. So Jesus put it like this. He said, it is the Spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all. And how does the spirit enliven us? Through his word. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's John six sixty three. So let's look to his word this morning with the godly expectation that the Lord will minister to our hearts and empower us with the spirit. This morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in your copy of God's word to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. This is the word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, Letters of recommendation to you or from you. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word, we ask, O Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of our Savior, that we might be confident in him and rest in him. Equip us now, Father, by the power of your Spirit, that we might be faithful servants who look not to the wisdom of the world, but to the wisdom of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sometimes we can be easily impressed with all the wrong things. And what makes it worse is when we assume that God too thinks like us. You see, worldly thinking does not vanish overnight when we become Christians. It takes a lifetime of renewing our minds according to the Word to learn how to think Christianly, and to love what the Lord loves. Even a seasoned prophet of God had to learn this lesson. After the Lord rejected Saul as king over Israel, the Lord told his prophet Samuel, who had many, many years of experience judging the people of Israel, the Lord told him that he had chosen for himself a king from among the sons of Jesse. So, the prophet Samuel went to see the sons of Jesse, and we know how this Story goes, don't we? Samuel went through all the sons of Jesse, one by one. But the Lord had chosen David, the youngest, and he wasn't even in the lineup. But in that narrative, we are given a glimpse into Samuel's thoughts. As soon as Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest boy, he was very impressed. Eliab was tall and handsome, just like Saul was. And Samuel thought to himself, This guy has what it takes. He checks all the boxes. Surely this is the Lord's anointed, Samuel thought. But then we read these words, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, even though the Corinthians had come to faith through Paul's preaching, they had been led astray by outward appearances. Even though they had heard about how the wisdom of God in the cross makes foolish the wisdom of this world, they had become impressed by the wrong men teaching the wrong gospel. These men were Greek-speaking Jewish men who who dazzled the congregation with their eloquence and and, and status and self-promotion. They called themselves apostles and even claimed to receive visions from God. But they did not preach the same gospel that Paul preached. These men were Judaizers of a particular sort. And they were fascinated with the Old Covenant and Moses. And in all likelihood, they may have been insisting that in addition to following Jesus, it was necessary to observe the law of Moses. So these men proceeded to turn the congregation against Paul, to turn them against Paul and his apostolic authority, which put the Corinthians in grave spiritual danger. But thankfully, a majority of the congregation repented and turned back to Paul when he wrote them a firm letter of rebuke. But there was still an unrepentant minority, Threatening the unity of the church, and these false apostles were still lingering around. And so Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians, to answer his critics who were trying to discredit his apostolic ministry and authority. And what we see in this letter is is Paul battling for the hearts of this congregation because he loved them. Despite their betrayal of him, he works to build them up in the faith. He wants them to not only understand what the true gospel is, but also what true gospel ministry looks like. Remember, he's contrasting his ministry with the ministry of these false apostles. Now, in the first two chapters, Paul argues that his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ is genuine because, like the ministry of Jesus on earth, his too was marked by suffering. Suffering doesn't disqualify him, rather it is the mark of genuine apostolic ministry. God always leads his people in triumphal procession. He leads them into all kinds of affliction so that through their message and through their afflicted lives, he gets glory for himself. And so Paul's goal in this letter is to instruct the Corinthians in the true gospel so that A, they would be proud of him instead of being ashamed of him. And B, they would no longer be swayed by outward appearances, but that they would learn to think and live and minister like Christians. So look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. This gets to the heart of it. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those, those false apostles, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about what? Outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And so in this passage, beginning from chapter 3 and going all the way to chapter 7, Paul instructs the Corinthians about the glory of the new covenant and what it means to be a minister of the new covenant. The reasons Christians can suffer well and not lose heart. The reason we can receive comfort and comfort others. The reason we can repent and be reconciled to one another. The reason we can be generous. The reason we can be bold and not lose hope is because of the glory of the new covenant that we have entered into. Beloved, we can be confident in our ministry as members of a local church, because we can be confident in the gospel. And so as Paul grounds his apostolic authority and ministry in the superiority of the new covenant over the old, here are two lessons that we can take away from these verses for our lives and ministries here at Grace Church. Two lessons. Number one, true gospel ministry is marked by God's work in the hearts of his people. True gospel ministry is marked by God's work in the hearts of His people. And then number two, true gospel ministry is reliant on God's sufficiency and power. True gospel ministry is reliant on God's sufficiency and power. Point number one. Look at me at verse one. As Paul teaches us how true gospel ministry is marked by God's work. In the hearts of his people verse 1 are we beginning to commend ourselves again now why does paul say this well he says this because in the previous chapter chapter 2 verse 17 he has just defended his integrity this is the second time he does this the first time happens in in chapter 1 when he explains the the reason for the change in his travel plans he says my conscience is clear As Christ apostles, we always behave towards you in in godly sincerity. And I had no evil motives when I changed my plans. And then when you get to the end of chapter 2, that's chapter 2, verse 17, he says, unlike these false apostles, who he calls peddlers of God's word, unlike them, the true apostles of Jesus Christ, preach and teach the gospel as men of sincerity. And as though he can anticipate What these false apostles might say, oh, there he goes again. Look at Paul patting himself on the back. Paul says, you know what, I don't need to. I don't need to do that. As far as Paul was concerned, the only opinion he cared about was God's. And he knew that the Lord was leading him, wasn't Didn't he? And through him, the Lord was spreading the knowledge of his gospel everywhere. Christ himself had appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And he had given him his commission as his apostle. Now remember who an apostle is. An apostle was someone who had seen the Lord Jesus and was commissioned directly by him. So Paul was a man set apart for a unique task by the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. Just like the prophets of the Old Testament were called by God and given an authoritative message. In fact, Paul likens his authority to that of an Old Testament prophet who speaks on behalf of God. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. It's the last chapter, verse 10. He says, for this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. You know, that language language was used by Old Testament prophets. That's the authority that the Lord gave His prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.10 to build up and to tear down. You see, Paul and the rest of the apostles were appointed by Jesus and they became the aroma of Christ to God as they bore witness in word and through their afflicted lives. So Paul seems to say, do I need to defend this before a human court as an apostle? No, but there's more. Look at the text. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you so so paul here takes a jab at those false apostles they are the sum that he refers to or if you look at 217 he says we are not like so many referring to the false apostles you know this is paul's way of saying i'm not taking any names but you know not like those people So he's taking a jab. And he says, do we, the true apostles of Christ, do we need letters of recommendation as some do? Letters to you or from you. Who gets to stamp the seal of authenticity on my apostleship? Is it some important person from Jerusalem? Or do I need it from you, the congregation at Corinth? Who do I need it from? You see, the reason Paul sarcastically mentions this is because he knew that this is how these false apostles had weaseled their way into the church. They had flashy letters of recommendation that impressed the Corinthians. Now, we don't know who wrote these letters, but they were probably from Jerusalem. They were certainly not from the apostles in Jerusalem, but they were probably from important religious figures from the Jewish community who believed in Jesus. You see, in, in those days, Jerusalem was considered the fountainhead of Christianity. This was where it all started. This was headquarters. And this is how these men got a hearing. Beloved, isn't that how this happens today as well? So often as Christians, we will swallow, we will lap up whatever someone tells us or writes without any discernment or engagement with the Scriptures just because that someone knows someone really important in the evangelical world. Or that article appeared on a very famous evangelical website. We just lap it up. It happens all the time. You know, Sometimes we tend to be impressed with the wrong things. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul was against sending letters of reference. When Apollos first came to Achaia, he was sent out with a letter of reference so that the disciples could know who this was and welcome him. You see that in Acts 18, 27. Or in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3, Paul told the Corinthians that uh, they could send a letter accrediting the person who would carry funds to Jerusalem. Paul himself commends Phoebe and Timothy and Titus in his letters. It's a good practice. Just two days ago, Jeff Hay, the pastor of Ballycullen Collin Community Church in Dublin, Ireland, sent me an email asking me if I could send him a letter of reference for our friend Naveen Cherian, who was seeking to join that church. And so Jeff was asking me, did Naveen leave on good terms? Do you have any concerns about his life that we should know about? He's been such an encouragement to us. Tell us how we can care for him. And you know, I greatly appreciated the way this this pastor was caring for Naveen and he was caring for the members of his church. So Paul wasn't against this practice per se. But he asks in this way because he knew that these false apostles were questioning his credibility as an apostle. They were saying things like, "Oh, this Paul He's not part of the the original 12 apostles of Jesus. He never walked with Jesus. Like, why should we trust him? What does he know? Where's his letter of recommendation? You know, this challenge to his apostleship was something that was already brewing, even in 1 Corinthians. And so you can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, how Paul makes the case that after appearing to all the other apostles, Jesus appeared to him also. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, that's Jesus, appeared also to me. You know, what Paul can't believe is that after all that he and the Corinthians have gone through. Like, is this what it boils down to? You want want a flashy recommendation? So how does he respond? Look at verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. You know, Paul says, you, that's plural, referring to the church at Corinth. He says, the fact you exist as a church, founded on the apostolic gospel of Christ, you are my epistle. You are my letter of recommendation. See, the church is a living letter, so to speak. And Paul says, you prove the genuineness of my apostleship and ministry. Remember, Paul had planted this church and they had received the Spirit. They had come to faith in Christ through his preaching of Christ and him crucified. You know, this is similar to how he defends his apostleship in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. He writes, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Now, think about this statement in light of all that we know has transpired between Paul and the Corinthians. Their disloyalty, their hostility. And yet notice how Paul speaks of them. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Look at the verse. And you are written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You're in our hearts, he says. Even though they had turned against him and sinned against him, he loved them with a Christ-like love. He wrote to them that letter of rebuke because of the abundant love that he had for them. As their apostle and pastor, he was fully committed to their spiritual well-being. Beloved, that's the kind of man you want as an elder or a pastor in the church. You want men who are committed to the word, who are committed to the congregation, knowing that Jesus has purchased his people with his own blood. You want men who love the church, who, who hold you in their hearts and are not afraid to point out your sin. You want men who can take a hit and endure. You want men who can that you can look up to as spiritual fathers who will love you not just when it's convenient. And not just when you're well behaved. You want men who will love like Jesus. You want shepherds who are not surprised or paralyzed when sheep bite. They bit Paul, didn't they? Now, good pastors should always be able to say, look, I love you. You're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by your works. Nothing will change. But brothers, those who are justified, produce good works. And sister, these are the areas in which you are failing to honor God. These are the sins you need to repent of. These are the people you need to reconcile with. You need men who love you enough to give you an honest assessment of how you're doing spiritually and to help you by the grace of God to grow up into Christ. Despite all that happened, Paul says, you are written in our hearts to be known and read by all. They may have been ashamed of their apostle, but he wasn't. He wasn't ashamed of his church. He was convinced that they were believers. After all, a majority of them had repented. Paul says, you are written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul was so proud and grateful for the way they had repented. He was grateful for the way that they had changed. And he was telling everyone about it. He boasted about them to the Macedonians. You see that in 2 Corinthians 9 too. He even boasted about them to Titus. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 14. Just look at that for a minute. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 14. 14 He says for whatever boasts I made to him about you I was not put to shame but just as everything we said to you was true so also our boasting before Titus has proved true He was boasting about them to Titus before he sent them that severe letter he Says take it Titus I know these people I know they will change if they read my letter take it I know them And he says you didn't put me to shame you You did exactly what I thought you'd do. He he loved them. He He was proud of them. He held them in his hearts. Imagine that. You see, Paul's confidence was not merely in the fact that they existed or that he loved them dearly, but that their changed lives bore evidence that the gospel that Paul had preached was at work in them. God was at work in their hearts. And you could see evidences of his grace in the lives of those Corinthians. And they were significant. They were visible, which is why Paul says, look at verse 3. He says, and you show, you demonstrate, you disclose, you manifest, you make visible that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. The Corinthians were living letters from Christ, from Christ. What greater endorsement do you need? Jesus wrote those letters. This was His doing. Their new lives were because of the Lord's work in them. Or as James says in James 1.18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. God gave birth to us, to our new selves. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit. But Jesus did this through the ministry of his appointed apostles, through the preaching of the apostolic word of the cross, and not through these false apostles. See, that's the point he's trying to make in this passage. You are a letter from Christ delivered by us as a result of Paul's ministry. You know, sometimes when you go into a fancy restaurant, uh, you'll find that they offer... The the chef's signature dish, right? The chef's special. Now, a signature dish is a a recipe that is unique to that particular chef. You know, sometimes we speak of a a sportsman's signature move or or play or style. You know, it's a way of identifying the individual by their work. And Paul is saying that this is Jesus' signature work. When the apostolic word is preached, lives are changed. See, true gospel ministry is marked by transformed Christ-like lives. So many pastors, so many churches will measure success in terms of numbers. How many members do you have? How many people attend? How large is your budget? How many people did you baptize? How many programs do you have? Do you have programs for kids? For youth? For young adults? For old people? For really old people? For really, really old people? And then there's that question that really gets on my nerves, usually asked by Indian pastors. How many branches do you have? Like, what are we, McDonald's? Beloved, just as the Corinthians were letters from Christ delivered by the apostles and you could see the fingerprints of Christ, the gospel at work in their lives, so also the true measure of a faithful gospel ministry in a local church is the presence of transformed Christ-like members who are speaking the gospel to one another. So let me ask you this, does that describe your ministry in this body as a member. What are your conversations like? Are they grace-filled conversations? Are they edifying conversations? Are those conversations aimed at transforming hearts? You know, this is what the apostles themselves were concerned about. Not what a church looked like outwardly, outward appearances, they were concerned about how people were doing spiritually. We see this in the book of Acts. After Paul and Barnabas spent some time teaching and preaching the word in Antioch, this is what Paul said to Barnabas. Acts 15 verse 36. He said, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. That's it. Let's go see how they are. There's nothing complicated about that. You know this doesn't mean that things like budgets and potlucks are unimportant but it does tell you what matters the most. Brothers the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives and this is the one thing that cannot be taken away from us and that's because under the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated in his blood he has done something new and permanent in our hearts. He's done something new and permanent in our hearts. Look at the text. He says to the Corinthians, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. You are Christ's work as a result of our preaching. Jesus wrote, I I was just the pen, says Paul. You are Christ's work as a result of our preaching. Verse 3, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Written not naturally, but supernaturally. Written not with something perishable, something that can fade away like ink, but written by the Spirit of the living God. Beloved, the testimony of the Scriptures is that every Christian comes to faith because of the work of the Holy Spirit who applies the work of Christ to their hearts. And every Christian grows in faith because of the work of the Holy Spirit who progressively makes us more like Jesus. Now, I want you to see what Paul is doing here. Here's the reason he uses that phrase, Spirit of the Living God, instead of simply saying the Holy Spirit. Remember that the ministry of these false apostles was was mainly aligned with the ministry of the Old Covenant. They were championing Moses and the law. And in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, or covenant, that's what the word testament means, Yahweh is called the Living God. This was a common way of describing God in order to distinguish Him from idols who were non-living. See, Paul knew that these men would know that. So here are a few verses from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 5, verse 26. Moses says to Israel, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Moses, of course, was speaking of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Or Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God, He is the living God and the everlasting King. Or Daniel 6.26, Nebuchadnezzar makes this decree that his people were to fear and, and tremble before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God, enduring forever. And this is what makes Peter's confession so stunning, Matthew 16. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So there's a sense in which Paul's gospel ministry is not at odds with the God of the Old Testament. It is the spirit of the living God who transforms the Corinthians into Christ's likeness through Paul's ministry. But what God is doing through the finished work of Christ in Paul's day and in our day, is something new. We know that because of the next verse. Look at the next verse. Christ has written not with ink but with the spirit not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Now that is no small difference. The reference to tablets of stone of course is to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. We see that in Exodus 31 verse 18. After God finished speaking to Moses he gave to him the two tablets of The testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. These contained the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments and they were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. These were God's covenantal words to the people of Israel. Now, now what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement made between two parties that involve promises and obligations. It's the way two, two parties relate to each other. And the covenant that we are most familiar with is the the covenant of marriage. Now, in the Bible, there are different kinds of covenants that God makes with His people. And they form the, the structural framework or the backbone of the story of the Bible. So redemptive history or the story of God's salvation for sinners progressively unfolds through a series of covenants. And they reach their fulfillment in the new covenant which Jesus inaugurates in His blood. It's the new covenant that all the previous covenants anticipate or look forward to. So first, we see the covenant with Adam and all creation in the garden. So we're going to look at all the covenants in the Bible very quickly. You see first a covenant with Adam and all creation in the garden. But we know that Adam sinned. He transgresses the covenant command of God and as a result of a sin, death comes into the world and everyone born after Adam or under Adam's headship inherits Adam's guilt and sinful nature. And yet despite their sin, God makes a gracious promise to Adam and Eve to send them a Savior who would be born of a woman and who would reverse the, call, the fall and save us from our sinful state and death. After that, The Bible records that the world spirals into sin and corruption, and so God destroys the world through a flood, but He saves Noah and his family, a group of eight people who trust in His covenantal word. And after the floodwaters recede in the new world, God makes a covenant with Noah. That's the Noahic covenant. He he promises not to destroy the world until the task of redemption is complete. And as time moves on, every offspring born of a woman doesn't seem like the promised savior. They only disappoint. God then makes a covenant with Abraham, and he promises to make a great nation out of Abraham's offspring, and through his offspring, bring salvation to the world. After Abraham's offering, the people of Israel find themselves enslaved in Egypt. God shows up, and he delivers them through Moses' leadership, and then he forms them into a nation. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and He enters into a covenant with them as a nation. This is the Mosaic covenant. God gives them the Ten Commandments, which tells them how to love the Lord, their Redeemer, and how to love one another. And so Israel's relationship with the Lord is contingent upon their covenant obligations to the Lord, and is described for us like like a marriage between the Lord and His bride. But marriage is not the only metaphor to describe Israel's relationship to the Lord. There's also that metaphor of sonship. The Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son. You know, As a son, uh, Israel was to be like God, like father, like son, to grow up into him. And yet they fail. Israel was redeemed in order to worship God, to trust and obey him alone. And so Israel is like a corporate Adam, a new people of God who are being called to do what Adam failed to do. But sadly, just as Adam rebelled against God and sinned against his wise and good rule, Israel too fails spectacularly again and again. And while there are a few people called the remnant who love God and trust in his promises, the entire history of Israel is marked, however, by a people who do not have a heart that loves God and desires to keep his word. And therefore, Israel is a a sort of a mixed community of a few believers, the remnant, but mostly unbelievers. And the prophets describe the hearts of these people as hardened hearts, or hearts of stone, or uncircumcised hearts. Even the kings of Israel who are supposed to obey God's word were mostly evil kings. Until God makes a covenant with a king after his own heart named David, and he promises him that one day a king will come from his line, an obedient king. Who will usher in an everlasting kingdom. And all the prophets of Israel look forward to this coming king or Messiah. And in due course, God revealed to the prophet Jeremiah that one day he would make a new covenant with his people. We see this in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. So just turn with me there. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is what the Lord says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He's speaking of the old covenant, the Sinai covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, this was Israel's problem. And this is the problem of of every human being as a child of Adam. That we are sinners and we don't love God's law. And God says, I'm going to change that. I am going to write my laws on their hearts. And no longer, he says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. They will all have my law written on their hearts. So the people of God will no longer be that mixed community of some who know him, but some, most of them don't. No, they will all know me, he says. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And God also tells the prophet Ezekiel that this new covenant work would come about through a work of cleansing. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, why is this necessary? Why is this necessary to to learn about the progression of these covenants and the promises associated with them? Because Paul wants these Corinthians to understand, and he wants us to understand, that the coming of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, ushered in the new covenant age that the prophets looked forward to. If the Spirit was dwelling in the hearts, in the new hearts of these Corinthians, if Christ had written on their hearts with the Spirit, then what Jeremiah and Ezekiel had prophesied was now here. It was now here. It was being fulfilled, not through the ministry of these Judaizers, but through Paul's apostolic ministry. As one author puts it, Moses, who is read in every synagogue, now gives way to Christ and to his Spirit, who is present in apostolic proclamation. And this is why Paul is confident and he's not shaken by their challenge to his apostleship. Look at the next verse. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. You see, the Old Covenant was never meant to be permanent, it served a temporary function. In salvation history. Paul says in Galatians 3.24. That the law was our guardian. Until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. You see the law was given to us to show our sin. To show us our need for a savior. The old covenant was not given to us to save us. The law could not save us. The law given to us externally. Couldn't transform our hearts. But God in his great mercy sent His Son in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, to do what the law could not do. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law, and He died on the cross in the place of sinners, in the place of lawbreakers, so that He could secure the forgiveness of their sins. He went to the cross as our substitute. He took our penalty, and then He rose from the dead to give us new hearts through the Spirit and the gift of eternal life by joining our new lives to his own life. He did this for everyone who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I want to submit to you that this confidence, this assurance that Paul had about the Corinthians, you too can have about your own lives if you turn away from your sins and put your trust in Jesus. You see, Christianity is not a self-improvement program. It's about a spiritual resurrection. In Jesus Christ, you too can be made new by the Spirit of the living God, and you can know Him. You can know the living God personally as you would know your friend. So turn away from your sins and put your trust in Christ. This confidence that Paul speaks about is through Christ. It's not through any other way. Through Christ toward God. Beloved, this is the joy and the assurance that you and I have as New Covenant believers. That the presence of God's Spirit in us, because of the work of Christ on the cross, this is what assures our hearts towards God. This is why we can sing, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Imagine that we can have assurance. We've been saved. Muslims don't have this assurance. They can try to do good works and hope for the best. Maybe God will forgive me of my sins, but we don't know. Roman Catholics don't have this assurance. In fact, in their catechism, even today you can pick up a copy, If you believe that you think you can have assurance of salvation, you're a heretic. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. You may commit a mortal sin tomorrow. And there's lots of stuff that you need to work out in purgatory. Who knows how many sins you'll have to cleanse there. Can you know for sure your sins will be forgiven and you'll be with God forever? You don't know. What a joy and relief we have. That we can can know with certainty that we are forgiven men and forgiven women. We can have assurance if, if tonight the Lord were to take you in your sleep. You can know with confidence that you will be with Him forever. You are right with God. That's the assurance we have in the gospel. Now this confidence that Paul had gave him great comfort and hope in his ministry, not because of anything in him, but because of God's power working through the apostolic word, transforming the Corinthians. This was an ongoing work of God's power in the life of the Corinthians. And that brings us to our second point. True gospel ministry is reliant on God's sufficiency and power. True gospel ministry is reliant on God's sufficiency and God's power. Look at verse 5. This is the confidence we have, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. See, Paul is saying that just because I'm confident in my ministry does not mean that I am confident in myself. His authority was not based on his personal aptitude and strength. It was based on God's power and God's authority working through him. Given all that these false apostles were claiming. This is important for Paul to say. These false apostles were were all about self-promotion. They were all about outward appearances. They put on airs. They spoke about their sufficiency. Their competence was off the flesh. Paul on the other hand says My fitness, my competency, my sufficiency is from God. I don't claim, when I speak about the changed lives of these people, I don't claim that all of this is because of me. This is the work of the Lord. This is the work of new covenant ministry. And this goes back to the previous verses when Paul speaks of God leading his apostles in triumphal procession with the awesome responsibility of preaching the gospel which saves some and condemns others. This is of God, but it is God who makes us sufficient for this task. Look at verse 6. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Notice how Paul makes this God-centered even in his defense. He doesn't say he has made us sufficient to be apostles, of a new covenant, even though he would be right if he said that. But rather he said he has made us ministers, diaconos, servants of a new covenant. Beloved, we serve God's purposes. I want you to stop and think about that. Because this is who God has called us to be, ministers of a new covenant. This is who God has called us to be as we speak the gospel to unbelievers and as we speak the gospel to one another, as we build one another up, as we encourage one another, as we exhort one another, as we counsel one another, we are servants of the new covenant. Just think what a privilege that is. Everything that God has orchestrated in redemptive history has culminated in this point. In the inauguration of the new covenant of which we are called to be servants of. This is the highest honor that any human being can be given. What a privilege it is to be a member of God's new covenant church. Like every time we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of that, aren't we? Luke 22 verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And notice how glorious this new covenant ministry is. Paul says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers, not of the old covenant, but of the new covenant. Verse 6, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now what does Paul mean when he says the, the ministry of the new covenant is not of the letter? He's referring to the letter of the law. The letter written on tablets of stone. The the written commandments of the law that are written outside of our hearts. They did not have the power to save us, to give us life. The law showed us our sin, imprisoned us under sin, condemned us under sin. The letter kills because our hearts remain dead in sin. Or as Paul will argue in the next verse, verse 7, the old covenant was a ministry of what? Of death. See, the comparison is between the ministry of the Old and the New Covenant. This is why Paul's ministry is powerful and the ministry of these false apostles is not. Now, we don't have to contend with these kind of false apostles today, but we do know of churches that are trying to be moralistic, that are relying on their own righteousness, that are relying on external rules instead of preaching the gospel to change hearts, who are decorating the outside of the cup with their own righteousness, but inside the cup is filthy. They have a a form of godliness, but denying its power. See, these false apostles were championing a ministry that had already reached its expiry date at Pentecost. The old has passed away, says Paul. Behold, the new has come. You know, sometimes people misunderstand uh, this verse, that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And people take this to mean, and this is a common misunderstanding, I don't know if you've encountered it, but they take it to mean something like this. People will say, oh, we should not do serious Bible study, looking at verbs and nouns and clauses. We shouldn't look at letters. God says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I live by the Spirit's power. The Lord speaks to me directly. This is what the text means to me. Let me tell you, it's deep spiritual meaning. That's not what this text is talking about. See, now Paul is contrasting the ministry of the old covenant and the new. The letter kills, but the Spirit, that is the work of the Spirit, through the Word that Paul and New Covenant believers preach and counsel and correct, this ministry is life-giving. It has sanctifying power. It transforms us. Beloved, the reason you and I can overcome temptation and say no to sexual sin is because of the glory of New Covenant ministry. The reason a woman can address the seeds of discontentment in her heart because she places herself under the searchlight of the gospel, the reason she can address her sin of grumbling and take it to Christ and ask for forgiveness and cleansing and be enabled to produce the the fruit of joy and contentment is because of the glory of new covenant ministry. The reason we can be comforted in our affliction and then turn around and comfort others and do it in joys because of the glory of new covenant ministry. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit empowers us through the apostolic word. Remember our call to worship? Romans 8, 2-4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see what a, what a wondrous thing that is? Those who receive the law could not keep it. But those who receive the Spirit have the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in us as we trust and obey Jesus. What a wondrous thing that is. By being joined to the vine, as Jesus says, His life transforms our own. Our obedience is generated from faith in Him working through love. Beloved, the ministry of the new covenant that you and I have been entrusted with is far superior to the ministry of Moses and the old covenant. This ministry of preaching and teaching the gospel is not a ministry of the letter that kills, but of the Spirit who gives life. And Paul has witnessed this life-giving power at work in the Corinthians through his ministry, hasn't he? They were enriched in every way in Christ. They were eager to know the truth. They were far from perfect. But they had the Spirit's life-giving power, and it was evident when they repented. See, the ministry of the Spirit is not that weird stuff that you see when you walk into a charismatic church. No, it's the sin overcoming, heart transforming, obedience generating, joy-giving work of the Word of Christ. You know, the world is, is captivated by all that is shiny and loud and glamorous and impressive. You know That kind of glory and wisdom is under God's judgment, according to 1 Corinthians 1.20. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, but there is another kind of glory that cannot be seen. It's hidden. It's foolish to the world. That glory belongs to the age to come. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, being transformed, being sanctified, it is the power of God. Friends, this is the heart and soul of New Covenant ministry. It is the Spirit who empowers us to obey the Lord as we believe in His Word. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So let's not be impressed by all the wrong things. Let's pray. Father, give us a heart that loves your Word. And cause our hearts to be yearning for more of your Word. We pray that we would see your Word as all-sufficient. We pray that we would delight in it. And we pray that your Spirit would transform us as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ in the Word. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in this church as people minister the Word of the Gospel to one another. Or we pray that we would see that it is the Spirit who gives life. Make us sufficient, O oh Lord, to be ministers of a new covenant. In Christ's name we pray.